If you would open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. As we continue on our exposition of this marvelous gospel of Christ. The gospel according to Mark as he tells us the stories of Christ and what he came to do. You know, there's a reality that each of us pretty well instinctively know at this stage of our lives that that there is a time and a place for certain activities, right? At least we should, right? Nobody nobody goes to a baseball game and files their taxes at the ballpark. That doesn't make sense, right? There's, There's a time and a place for these things. No one shows up to work wearing a costume, maybe on Halloween, but even then, if, even if that's the kind of workplace it is, even then the exception proves the rule, right? That this is abnormal, that this isn't the normal activity. There's a time and a place. But you know who doesn't always understand time and a place dynamics? Little children. Little children, as parents, we get to experience our children doing things that's are just what we would think to be the strangest thing for that moment in time, right? It's like, why are you doing this now of all times? Like, this is not the time and the place for that. And as parents, we get to lovingly teach them, okay, hey, all right, look, there's, there's a time and a place for that, but that is not now and that is not here. And so we get to grow and learn together through that process. Well, the preacher of Ecclesiastes tapped into this concept of the time and a place back in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Listen to what he wrote here, and I'm going to have this up on the screen for us. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 1, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the sun. Time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Something got out of order there. I'm not sure what happened. A time to cast away stones. And a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, oops, I, I, I advanced it too fast, but a time, to, <laughs> a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. There's all these, these ideas, these things are almost contradictory activities, right? These things don't work together, but there is a time and a place when each of these activities are appropriate. Jumping up and down and cheering for a hole in one is great on the golf course, but it doesn't make sense when you just ran over a nail and there's a hole in your tire, right? There's a time and a place, time for celebration and a time for mourning. And what the preacher challenges us to do is consider how God has made the world and how we all instinctively know that there is a time and a place for a variety of seemingly opposite activities 
And when we do the appropriate activity at the appropriate time, it is good, as he goes on to say in verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. That God has appointed the days and the seasons. And as we rightly engage with the things that God brings into our lives and appropriately respond to them, that He has made everything beautiful in its time as we recognize all of it from His hand. In our text today, Jesus is going to be asked a question. And in many ways, His reply could be boiled down to this. Well, there's a time and a place. In our text today, we find this truth. The arrival of the Messiah changes everything. The Messiah's coming, the coming of the Christ, it changes everything. What does that arrival change? What, what are the changes that we see? We see that the arrival of the Christ is going to bring rejoicing because the arrival of the Messiah, the arrival of the Christ brings newness. Let's read our passage this morning. Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? The narrator begins with just providing a little background information for us. This is what John's disciples, it's John the Baptist. He's got people who are following him, listening to his teaching. And here they are, they are fasting. And the the Pharisees and their disciples, they're also doing the same thing. They are also refraining from eating. But some noticed that Jesus was not fasting. And so that is what raises the question here. We know the Pharisees, now they are very pious individuals. And we know John the Baptist, he's a prophet, and here he is doing this activity, but Jesus is not. I do find it interesting if we were to go back into the previous paragraph, we see that interaction with the Pharisees where they are upset that Jesus is eating and drinking with with tax collectors and sinners. Like, how could he do such a thing? He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. Well, here the question is, why are you eating? It's not about the company he's keeping in this moment. It's just about the reality that you're eating at all. What's, what's going on here? Fasting, of course, is a spiritual discipline. It's abstaining from food, usually for a predetermined period of time, for a specific purpose. If we were to go back into the Old Testament and see when fasting was prescribed for the people, it only occurs in one location in connection with one feast or one, one uh, re- religious uh, sp- particular observance. And then we'll see later on in the book of Esther when the, the festival of Purim is instituted and fasting is connected to Purim as instituted by Esther. But there are no other commands of just fasting throughout the regular uh, periods of life that is, are commanded in the Old Testament. And yet, even without those commands, we still see individuals throughout the Old Testament fasting before the Lord. And every time that it happens, we see that there are particular things going on in the lives of the individuals. We find that fasting is a time of mourning. 
We find fasting in times of distress. Fasting in times of earnest pleading with God for some request. That, Lord, I, I'm bringing this before You, and I want You to, to hear my prayer, and, and I'm so earnest before You that I'm not even going to eat so that I can bring this before You in a more focused and intense way. In each case, the fasting speaks of sorrow. It speaks of hardship endured by the faster. Well, by the time the Pharisees came around, they had developed an entire system, of course, that added to the law, right? And they had this, this system developed around the concept of fasting where they fasted every Tuesday and Thursday. This is just what pious individuals do. We, we fast and we mourn on a regular basis. Now, they are fasting and mourning particular things. They, they have been mourning the Roman occupation. Now, we are not our own nation like we should be. The Romans have control over us. They would fast and they would mourn that. Well, the reason why there was a Roman occupation is clearly because we have sinful people in the land, so they're fasting and they're mourning all these sinners that are present in the land. Lord, take them away. This regular habit of the Pharisees was such a big deal to the Pharisees, and it was such commonly known that the early church, and the, there's, there's an early church document that's called the Didache, that was, meaning that the teaching, this is instructions that was given to the early church by, it's not an inspired document, right? It's not scripture, but there were instructions that were given. And in there, it said that Christians should fast on Wednesdays and Fridays, and not like the hypocrites who fast on Tuesdays and Thursdays, right? They, they had to be different from these Pharisees. This was a big deal to the Jewish people. So in my mind's eye, as I'm just, as I'm reading the text here and considering the flow of what has happened in the previous paragraph in here, we have Jesus, He's calling Levi, this, this tax collector. He's not, just, he's not just calling him to be His disciple, but then He's going and He's eating at His house, at the house of His friends, these sinners, these tax collectors, which of course the Pharisees absolutely abhor. They say, no, 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 He's, he cannot be eating and fasting, or eating and feasting, rather, with these, these tax collectors and these sinners. It's not enough to do that, but He's doing it on a Thursday, because that's a fasting day. So the question becomes, well, what gives? There's these individuals, they see that the people came to Jesus, they say, look, I, John's disciples, they're fasting, the Pharisees are fasting, but you're not. Sometimes we can ask questions and it's because you legitimately don't know the answer, right? We, I get those from my kids a lot. Like, Dad, why, is, why are clouds white? You know, what's the meaning of such and such a word? Sometimes we ask questions that it's not really so much of a question as it is an accusation. And if I get the first kind of question from my kids, I find that a lot of times I ask these, these second kind of questions to my kids. Why isn't your room clean? Right? The implication of the question is that your room should be clean. You should have been working on this, right? It, the question itself carries an accusatory, accusatory tone. I get the sense that that's what's going on here with Jesus. They are fasting and you're not. 
you should be. Like, that, this is just what pious people do. Why are you being so worldly, Jesus? But look at how Jesus responds. Verse 19. Jesus says to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Well, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. I find this response to be pretty interesting on Jesus. He doesn't directly answer the question, but He answers it in, a, in an analogy kind of way. He gives them this, this analogy, making it between Himself and a wedding party. Now again, as we established, fasting is done in times of sorrow, in times of, of mourning or hardship. So no one goes to a wedding and mourns, right? Like that, that doesn't make sense. There's a time and a place for these things, and the time for fasting and mourning is not at a wedding celebration when two individuals are coming together and celebrating their new union together. This is, should be a time for, for dancing and rejoicing and celebrating, Right? It's a wedding after all. A Jewish wedding was a very big deal. They were very extravagant. This was something that the whole community would be, would be involved in. They would be coming together rejoicing and celebrating this, this new thing that God had brought these two individuals together. They threw, they, literally they threw a party, right? It, it, was, it was a tremendous thing. So if you showed up to this party in funeral clothes, and wanted to make the party a funeral march. Not only would that be rude, but it just doesn't make sense in the context. There's a time and a place, and this is not the time, and this is not the place. And that is the point. Jesus draws this analogy between Him and the bridegroom. And those who are hearing, believing, and following Jesus Christ, they are the wedding guests. They've been invited to come. And Jesus is saying that it doesn't make sense for the wedding guests to mourn when they've got the bridegroom. It doesn't make sense for people who are sinners, who need the Savior, to mourn when the Messiah, the Christ, has come. The Messiah had come. He was right there in front of them. And this ought to have been a time of celebration and joy. The arrival of Christ brings rejoicing. Christ's arrival brings rejoicing to us. This is not a time for fasting, but rather feasting for the Messiah has come. Think, if you would, for a moment, this progression of this chapter as we've seen it unfold. The beginning of the chapter, we see that Jesus is teaching that all the crowds are there and there's a man being brought to Him for healing, but they, they can't get in because of the crowds. And so they, they go up on the roof, they tear open the roof, and they lower Him down. And Jesus sees him and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Tremendous moments. And then he heals him to prove that the forgiveness was real, right? Sinners being forgiven. That's a big deal, amen? People who have sinned, who have violated God's life, come now to see forgiveness before God. The section that we saw last week, Jesus calls a tax collector, feasts with him and other sinners to boot, and now Jesus says, hey, this is why I'm even here. I've not called, I've not come to call the righteous, 
but sinners to repentance. And the Pharisees, instead of being bothered by what Jesus was doing, they should have been rejoicing to see that sinners were being turned into saints. Sinners were being saved. Even the tax collectors, even the scum of the earth, even people like me, even people like you. And this is what we need to realize. And we are the sinners. We are the scum of the earth. But He came for us. He came for us. Why should I be invited to the wedding? I, I have no business there. I, I am not someone who is fit to join that celebration. I'm a poor, wretched, blind, and naked sinner. I have nothing to offer Christ. But there I am. He has bid me come. He has, he has welcomed me in. So what further cause of rejoicing is there than that? Right, this, there ought to be a reason for rejoicing. Why would we fast? Why would we mourn when we have salvation in Christ? I don't know if you ever thought about our, our potlucks in this light. We call this our first family feasts, right? We're feasting together as a, as a church, as a, as a body. Why? Is it just because we like food? Well, we do like food, but I hope that's not the only reason, right? We can come together and we can sit around the table. We can enjoy fellowship with one another because of what Christ has done for us, because He has saved us, because we share this, this common bond in the body of Christ that I have been forgiven of my sin, you have been forgiven of your sin, and we rejoice together. We enjoy this good food together because of Christ. It is a time of rejoicing, and it is good to rejoice together. It only makes sense to rejoice when we consider that the Messiah has come. Now, I don't believe that Jesus is forbidding Christians from fasting in this text. Right, it makes sense to rejoice. Time and a place. I don't think he's forbidding fasting. And, and if you look at his response, he says in verse 20 that the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in that day. He's recognizing, again, there will be a time and a place for fasting, a time and a place for mourning. And this is really, this is actually the, this is the first time that Jesus publicly predicts what's going to be coming for him when he is going to be taken away, he's going to be hung upon that cross, he's going to die, and eventually he's going to be ascending into heaven. And there will be a day of grief for his disciples. And even as we are here on this earth, as we await his second coming, I do believe that there are times today when it is appropriate for us to be in times of fasting and prayer before our God. I think there is a time and a place for that. But here in this text, Jesus is there. He's present physically with them on the earth. The Messiah, the Christ, He was there. So it doesn't make sense in that moment to fast because the arrival of the Messiah brings rejoicing. 
The arrival of the Messiah brings forgiveness of sins. Well, not only that, but His ministry begins, it brings something new. Christ's arrival brings newness. Look at what He goes on to say in verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Here we have a pretty, what feels like a very sudden shift in Jesus' words here. Jesus takes the conversation in what to me appears to be really an unexpected direction. After talking about fasting, He talks about sewing a new patch on old clothes or putting new wine into old wineskins. And I have to confess that the first time I was studying this text and trying to understand it, this really confused me. Like, why this shift? What does this have to do with fasting? And the answer to that question is it doesn't have anything to do with fasting. <laughs> As I begin to study this passage more, I realized that I was asking the wrong question. The question shouldn't be, what does this have to do with fasting? But rather, what is Jesus teaching us about the nature of His ministry? What is Jesus teaching us about the nature of His ministry? When He answers the question about fasting, He, he doesn't answer it in such a way that is just a, a matter of directly answering the question, but He does it in such a way that teaches about the nature of His ministry, that His ministry brings rejoicing. And when we look in context, we see the forgiveness that is offered to sinners. And of course, that brings rejoicing. But he goes on to say and, and teach more about the nature of his ministry with, with these second two analogies that he provides. He takes this opportunity to press in on another aspect of his ministry, and that is that he makes things new. He brings newness. And the things that he does bring does not mix well with the old. So first he talks about the clothes. Right? And I think this is something that we could all understand. If you have a, have a hole in some old clothes and you want to patch it, if you have an unshrunk piece of cloth and you want to patch it, you want to sew it onto that old cloth, when you wash the clothes, that unshrunk cloth will then shrink and it'll tear the stitches and all this stuff. And now we have a worse situation than we had in the first place. So really, it's common sense. We don't put new patches on old clothes. It doesn't make sense. Likewise, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Well, why not? Well, it's not like we have just like a, like a plastic pitcher or a, or a clay pot or something that you can just reuse over and over again and it's no big deal. No, in those days, the, when the new wine was made, it was placed in sacks that were made from animal hide. And they called those wineskins. Well, as the grape juice fermented and turned into wine, that fermentation process would have an effect upon the skins themselves and those skins would expand. Well, every time, if you try to reuse those skins, every time you would put new wine into the wineskins and it would go through the fermentation process, that skin would expand a little more and a little more. Well, there's only so far that animal skin can stretch before it will burst, right? And so eventually you lose the wine 
and the wineskins. And so it is common sense. You don't put new wine into old wineskins. New wine only goes into new wineskins. What then is the point? What's Jesus getting at here? I believe Jesus is telling us that the old and the new, they don't mix. He's teaching us about the nature of His ministry. His ministry brings rejoicing because there's, there's forgiveness being offered to sinners. They're being, they're being called out of their old ways of life, but that's just the point. They're being called out of their old ways of life. The old ways and the new ways, they don't mix well together. The scribes and the Pharisees, these religious leaders, they, they wanted to keep things as they were. They wanted to keep people bound under the law. They wanted to continue to teach that the way to God was through the religious system. But Jesus is calling people to a new way of life. And so there are people that were trapped in that system. They're, they're playing the game and hoping that, that God would see their effort and reward them on the basis of that. And so they were trapped within that system. Maybe there were others, though, that said, you know what, I see what's going on there, and that game's not for me. I'm not going to play the Pharisees game, but I'm just going to sin it up and just enjoy it in the process. So I will be a tax collector, I'll be the prostitute, or I'll engage in some other disreputable activity. But here Jesus comes along, preaching a message of repentance and faith in Him. Come offering forgiveness for these sins, not to the self-righteous, but to the scum of the earth, sinners. What Jesus is saying is that these, these, these old ways of life under the law, under the scribes, the Pharisees, or, or that old life as a, as a tax collector, as, as, as just living in unrepentant sin, those old ways, they don't mix with the new ways of following Jesus Christ. It, it doesn't make sense together. Discipleship, this process of following Jesus, it requires a new, a new framework for our lives. Right? We don't get to come to Jesus on our own terms and say, well, okay, yep, I, I do, you know what, I, I like what you're offering, Jesus. I want your forgiveness. I want your eternal life. But I still want to hold on to what I was doing before. I, I still want that to be what I do, a part of my life. I just want to tack on Jesus. It doesn't work that way. And Jesus nowhere, nowhere commands us to, to clean up our lives before we come to Him. But the process of discipleship, when we come to Him in, in genuine faith, believing that He is the only way to eternal life, that nothing that we can do contributes to our salvation, when we come to Him and we begin that process of following Him, He begins to teach us and to show us how the new ways of life in Christ, they don't mix with these old ways. We've got to have this transformation begin to take place over time. And if we try to make it work, if we try to to continue to to force, like, no, no, I'm just going to cling to my old ways, it might seem like things work okay for a little while, but eventually those wineskins are going to break. And I believe that we're seeing this in our day. 
this whole great big movement that we see going on of this whole deconstruction movement, I think is evidence of the wineskins breaking. Individuals who wanted to tack on Jesus, yet they still wanted to live according to their own ways, live according to the philosophies of the world, live within their own sin. They say, you know what? I'm going to go through this deconstruction period. I don't think Jesus would, would condemn people for their homosexuality. I don't think Jesus would, would have a problem with this, that, or the other thing. They're trying to mix the new ways and the old ways together, and it doesn't happen, and so they end up abandoning the faith. I think that's part of what's going on. The old and the new don't mix, and when we try to make them mix, it doesn't work. This is why, after all, Jesus has been preaching a message of repentance to the people. Repentance, of course, means that I was walking according to my own way, and now I'm I have a change of mind. There's, there's something different that I need to believe something differently, and that is going to inevitably affect the way I live my life. And so now I'm no longer going according to my own way, but I begin to learn how to follow after God and go His way. It's a complete change of mindsets that begins to affect how we live our lives. So I want to challenge us this morning. I think there's a lot of people who treat church attendance similarly to how scribes and Pharisees viewed observance to the law. Right, we can so easily attend church, we sing our songs, maybe we, maybe we put money in the offering box, maybe we get baptized, thinking that we've earned some kind of favor with God, that, that God likes that, and so we're, we're getting our brownie points with God, so to speak. As if we can just put a check mark in our box, like, okay, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I'm good to go. And then we can look around at everyone else who isn't doing those things, and we can have our noses turned up so high that if it rained, we'd drown. We need to understand and embrace this reality that we cannot earn favor with God no matter what we do. We can, we can be at church every single day of the week, and if our heart's not in the right place, we're not earning anything before God. And even if we don't have these thoughts consciously, like uh, <laughs> I think very seldomly do we consciously have the thought, oh yes, I need to come to church today so I can earn a favor with God today. Like we don't have that conscious thought in our heads. And yet the temptation can be to view church in that way. That, that temptation is always there. And if we have a constant judgmental attitude towards those who aren't living according to what we think they ought to be living like, or if we come to church and the whole process is just habitual for us and we don't, we don't think about, we don't dwell upon, we don't allow the, the things that we do here to, to cause us to look unto Christ and we're just going through the motions on everything, we are at serious risk of being in the same shoes as the scribes and Pharisees in Jesus' day. And I want you to know I include myself within the warnings of this. Right? I'm not immune to going through the motions. There's the other side of the spectrum as well. Individuals who want to live their lives their way, they want to live in sin, they want to not follow the commands of Jesus, but, but they want the perks, right? They want the forgiveness, they want the eternal life, but they have no desire to actually follow and obey the one that makes those things possible. 
What Jesus is saying to both groups on both sides of that spectrum is it doesn't work that way. It, it doesn't work that way. Jesus is telling us that, the, that to follow Him means that we have to chuck the old mindsets. Levi, the tax collector, cannot wallow in greed and continue to abuse his powers and take advantage of people and follow Jesus. It doesn't mix. It doesn't fit together. The old way and the new way don't mix. Can you think of an individual who tried to make it mix? Judas tried to make it mix, didn't he? And that ended in his own destruction. The Pharisees and the scribes, they can't cling to their old legalistic way of thinking that they are superior to everyone else simply because they keep their own version, their self-imposed version of their moral code, and then also follow Jesus. The old and the new, they don't mix. Likewise, we cannot allow ourselves to think that just because we are sitting in church on a Sunday morning, just because maybe we put money in the box in the back or we live according to a certain moral code and standard that we think is right, that we're better than anyone else or that we're earning a credit with God, that attitude just doesn't mix with the ways of following Jesus Christ. Furthermore, we cannot allow, we cannot allow ourselves to think that we can just live any way that we want. We can ignore whatever it is that God says is right and live in unrepentant sin and just tack on Jesus and everything will be okay. They don't mix. And, and furthermore, if I, if I could just ask the question in this way, why would you want to mix them together? Where Jesus, He comes with this message of, of repentance. The old way is the way that leads to death. The old way is the reason why we're in the predicament that we're in in the first place, uh, standing underneath the wrath of God. Why would we want to continue in that when we're offered the new way of life in Jesus Christ? Not only do the old and the new don't mix, it doesn't even make sense to try to make a mix. We have the new way of Christ. We have the arrival of the Messiah, forgiveness of the sin that kept us bound in our chains and hellbounds. Christ has come. The Messiah has come. He's offering us the forgiveness of sins through faith in Him and Him alone. And He's offering us a new way of life. Praise God for that new way of life. That when we begin to order our lives according to the Scriptures, it shouldn't be a burdensome thing to us, but something that is a cause for rejoicing at what Christ has done. Praise God, I'm not what I once was. Praise God, I am not going to remain where I am today, but there will be a day when I will continue to be conformed to Christ, and that will be complete in the day of glory. We praise God that Jesus has brought something new. And we recognize that this way of Jesus, we're not claiming it's an easier way. Often the flesh is strong. We don't pretend that the new way of Christ is safer. All those who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But we, knew, we do know that it is truly, truly better. It is the way of life. It is the way of joy. 
Christ offers forgiveness to the unforgivable. And in case you weren't sure, that's you. And that's me. So we, the arrival of Christ, the arrival of the bridegroom, absolutely. This is a time and a place for rejoicing. But we also recognize that discipleship requires a new framework for life. The old and the new don't mix. If we, if we try to mix them, it might seem okay for a while, but eventually the cloth will tear. The wineskins will burst and we'll be sitting wondering what went wrong. So we seek the Savior. If there are old ways that we are clinging to, ask His help for, to learn how to let those things go. Seek His counsel to put the old ways to death. Study the Scriptures, for in them we have life. Look unto Him, for He is gentle, and He will guide us and teach us. He doesn't expect us to become perfect overnight. But He teaches us in the process of following Jesus. We learn and grow together. I close with this well-known passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul wrote, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Praise God. That old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We have the privilege, we have the pleasure of getting to let other people know about the goodness that is in Jesus Christ, that there is forgiveness available, that there's a new way of life available for all those who will trust in Him and Him alone. Rejoice, the Messiah has come. Lord, we do thank You so much for Jesus Christ and how His arrival, it changes everything for us. No longer have to, we have to be condemned in our sin. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. We praise You. We thank You. We rejoice. And every time we feast, we feast in this reality. Lord, I pray that You'll help us to Live and walk according to the new way of life, recognizing that the old ways and the new ways, they don't mix together. Praise God, we don't have to mix them. Teach us, Lord, your ways. Help us to follow after you and to learn how to put the old things behind us. We know it's a process. We know that there are different things that we struggle with along the way. But your word is faithful. Your word is true. Christ is faithful. Christ is true. And He will lead us along the way. We thank You and we praise You for this today. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.